You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 27, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the cost of solar continues to fall, it's creating some entirely new dynamics in utility power procurement. Where just two or three years ago, utilities were beginning to recognize that solar was actually cheaper than coal and could replace much of the rapidly retiring coal capacity. Now the thinking has shifted to solar also displacing natural gas-fired generators. This is especially true for solar plus storage systems, which have suddenly started popping up with incredibly low prices, generally under three cents a kilowatt hour. No other kind of electricity generator can compete with that kind of price in the U.S., except occasionally wind. And this is turning the conventional thinking about power procurement on its head. Because it has long been assumed that utilities would continue to focus on natural gas as their primary source of generation, not only because it would remain the cheapest source of power for many years to come, but also because it was believed that dispatchable gas generators would be needed to balance out the variability of renewables. But with storage-equipped solar projects now undercutting the price of gas-fired power, that is simply no longer the case. And indeed, this point has arrived a lot more quickly than I think anyone expected. Not by 2030 or by 2040, but now. The levelized cost of energy for utility-scale solar fell 85% from $350 a megawatt hour in 2009 to less than $50 a megawatt hour in 2017, and continued on down, outpacing the cost decline of new natural gas capacity, which only fell 27% over the same period, to the point where solar is now being preferred over gas in recent utility procurement plans. So what's next for solar policy? Are we getting to the point where incentives for solar, like the investment tax credit, state rebates, and renewable portfolio standards can be eliminated, or are they still necessary? And what's the proper role at this point for solar advocates? Are they still necessary? And what of the warnings of some analysts who believe that solar is in danger of becoming so cheap that even solar developers can no longer afford to build it? The so-called value deflation problem. Will that ever be a real problem? And is some program of intensified R&D needed to help solar get even cheaper even more quickly? I can think of no one better to answer these questions than our guest in this episode. Adam Browning is the co-founder and executive director of Vote Solar, a nonprofit advocacy organization in the U.S. with the mission of bringing solar energy into the mainstream. He's as keen an observer of the solar industry as you'll find anywhere, and speaking as a fan of Vote Solar's work for many years now, it's a pleasure for me to finally have him on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll explore in detail California's new solar mandate for new homes, and non-subscribers will get quite a bit more than usual in the abridged news segment of this episode, so make sure you stick around for that. I'll offer my comment on the Trump administration's latest gambit to keep failing coal and nuclear plants in business. We'll revisit yet another new wrinkle in the ongoing debacle of the abandoned VC Summer nuclear reactor in South Carolina. 
will note the strange connection between Trump's beleaguered lawyer, Michael Cohen, and some nuclear projects, and will applaud a great new program of EV charging infrastructure in Canada. But first, our conversation with Adam Browning, recorded May 4th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Adam, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me on. Just in case some of our listeners aren't really familiar with Vote Solar, why don't you explain a bit about the organization, what it does, and how it is funded? Happy to. So we are 16 years old now. We're a nonprofit public advocacy organization, a 501c3, focused on state-level policy advocacy to grow solar markets in the U.S. Our hope is to look state-by-state, look at all the policies that create a market, and look at all the roadblocks, knock down the roadblocks, put in the policy support, and get a thriving renewable energy future through that. We now have 26 people in 11 different offices around the country, and we focus both on distributed rooftop solar as well as on utility-scale solar issues with programs that include community solar, low-income solar access and equity, as well as grid modernization, ensuring that we're able to have a grid that can deliver the right reliability once we have high levels of renewables delivering carbon-free electricity. Gotcha. So as the name might imply, you're essentially an advocacy organization. That is our niche. We do some studies and analyses, but what we really do is we put those to work. We are in the legislature. Most of our work ends up being regulatory, so we intervene in the dockets. Through our history, we've been involved in hundreds of regulatory proceedings in 30 states around the country. And the heart of our work is just getting to the nub of policy change and Mm. making those things happen. And participating as an intervener on utility dockets. Absolutely. So we do the intervention. And, you know, our motto is that you have to have an inside game. You need to make your case with numbers. So you have an intervention's a, a legal proceeding where you generally have a legal counsel. And then we have staff as well as expert witnesses, consultants that provide the testimony, do the math of why we think the outcome that we want to see is the right one. But Chris, you never win just because you're right. So <laughs> the other half where we spend a lot of time on is really doing a deep dive into the politics of a state of a particular situation and bringing to bear the supermajorities of the American public that want to see this transition to happen. So we custom craft our campaigns You know, after we do some reverse engineering of the decision makers and what influences them. We put together a campaign that meets the politics of the moment of the place and spent a lot of time doing press work, doing grass tops, grass roots, and really trying to get the politics right for the outcome that we all want to see. Gotcha. And where does the funding come from? So principally foundation funded. So I end up spending a lot of time on the fundraising part. We do, thank you for mentioning this, we do accept member donations and <laughs> we you know, have a certain amount of funding that comes from intervener compensation in California, where if you are successful in making your case, sometimes you can cover some of your costs, but principally it's foundation funding. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about some solar policy then. So... 
Solar has already become the cheapest way to put up some new generation capacity in several markets in the U.S. and certainly in much of the rest of the world. In recent episodes of this show, we've mentioned some remarkably low price projects that have recently come to the U.S., For example, the one gigawatt portfolio of solar farms that Capital Dynamics AG has announced that it's going to build in Nevada, which will sell power to customers for just under five cents a kilowatt hour, including distribution charges, which likely makes it the lowest cost solar project to date in the U.S. And then there was the Solar Plus Storage Project proposed by First Solar that recently beat out all the other bidders in a solicitation from Utility Arizona Public Service, which will supply power under a 15-year fixed-price contract, and this has left some observers wondering if solar has finally gotten cheap enough to just put an end to the boom in gas-fired peaker plants in the U.S. What do you think about that question? Has solar plus storage just taken over? You know, these prices that you're mentioning are absolutely incredible, and I do think that if we're not now at a cheaper and better value proposition than we soon will be. When I got started in solar, you know, 15, 16 years ago, we were looking at nine bucks a watt. Yeah. And you know what? It was I was in the business then. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> so you remember those days, right? It's yeah. a lot easier to be promoting cheap solar than expensive solar. So Well, ain't that the truth? And you know, this was always the plan. The idea from the beginning, and we had data and case studies to back it up, was that through economies of scale, you could bring down costs. You had to develop support systems to buy expensive solar in order to get to cheap solar. And it worked exactly as promised. So I think this is an awesome example of an interventionist policy delivering on the goal that it promised. So that said, you know, now that we're at this price inflection point, what does that really mean? You know, it is clear to me, and it should be clear to most of your listeners as well, that price isn't always everything. In fact, I would say that even if solar were free, handed out on street corners, you wouldn't necessarily see the uptake commensurate with that value proposition. Let me just give you an example right now. Utilities generally get paid on capital deployed. And the things that save ratepayers money sometimes reduce their profits. So as long as you have regulated utility parent companies or holding companies that have ownership interests in gas, you're really going to see a thumb weighted on the scale towards an investment in gas. So we just intervened uh, in Michigan on this big effort. Uh, DTE wanted to build 1,100 megawatts worth of new gas. We had an analysis that showed that solar and wind and energy efficiency was faster, cheaper, 10x more jobs, saved $340 million for ratepayers. But you know, we used, frankly, the same model that the utility used. We just used reasonable inputs for the cost of gas and the up-to-date prices for solar. It was abundantly clear that as the holding company also had an investment interest in the gas pipeline, you know, they also wanted to make sure that they were keeping that pipeline full. So, And regulators in Michigan agreed with you. Well, You know, I think we made a mark through that campaign. I'm really proud of it, to be honest with you. I don't normally say that, you know, we're even when we lose, we're proud of it. We're intensely interested in winning. But (laughs) I think this particular campaign laid the groundwork. It will never again be this easy for them. Mm. It is going to be different going forward. So I would just 
when we're talking, it's not always just a numbers game. There are entrenched interests that have a interest in in a different future, and it's going to take advocacy to unwind all of that. Yeah, so um, I want to go back to this question of gas-fired plants versus solar plus storage. I mean, are you seeing any additional evidence from the marketplace that this is really an indication of things to come, what we're seeing here in Arizona? So I do think Arizona is a really interesting place. I would also just uh, you know, take California, where its policymakers for the last couple of decades have really put the state on a path towards clean energy. We had just recently this week, we had uh, SoCal Gas ask for a new gas pipeline. I would say, you know, gas has been the source of the state's unreliability problems. It hasn't been a solution. So going back to the Enron days, and then more recently at the leak at Aliso Canyon, you know, it's become clear that a reliance upon gas is really a source of unreliability. And yeah. there's a better way of doing it. So, you know, policymakers, the CPUC just put out a proposed decision yesterday, or the day before that looked at that $2 billion new gas pipeline and said, no, said that we're not going down that path, we can save that money. And we can count on the sun and the wind to deliver into those load pockets. So I do think it takes a a longer term view and a wholesale buy-in by the policy infrastructure in order to really put a state to market onto a different path. So yeah. Arizona is also an interesting position. They're the Saudi Arabia of solar energy, like the world-class solar resource, Arizona Public Service's latest IRP, Integrated Resource Plan, where they look forward they wanted to build a couple of gigawatts worth of gas, and they had like 60-some megawatts of new solar over the next decade. It was crazy. And the Arizona Corporation Commission, to their immense credit, told them to go back to the drawing board, that that wasn't mm -hmm. what they wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is very interesting to me to watch sort of this horse race between gas peaker plants and solar plus storage for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I think a lot of people who observe the market really thought that this boom in gas peaker plants was going to continue for a long time. Like, I mean, people really thought that, for example, we would just keep shutting down coal plants and replacing them, you know, sort of watt for watt with new gas plants instead as an approach to decarbonization, when in fact that's not what's happening at all. And the second reason is nobody thought that solar with storage was going to be cheap enough to really compete, especially because I think... The cost of storage has always been so much higher than what would be competitive sort of on an LCOE basis with gas or something like that. But the cost of storage has dropped so quickly that solar plus storage is suddenly a thing, you know, where I don't think anybody really expected it to be just even maybe two years ago. So it is interesting to me to see kind of the changing thinking around this. And it's good to know that regulators are starting to pay attention to that as well. Well, you know, the prices that we've seen for contracts, this isn't vaporware, this is contracts where there are significant penalties if you don't perform, are just mind-blowing. I agree yeah. with you, and that'll get the attention of utilities and regulators pretty quickly.
You know, it seems unlikely that coal or nuclear will likewise ever be able to compete again with solar at these prices, especially given the fact that solar's costs are transparent. As you say, there are significant penalties for non-performance. It's a 15-year fixed-price contract. You know, there's nothing being hidden here like these nuclear debacles that we've seen in the Southeast that I've been banging on about. I just hate the way that you know, they're able to just sort of hide costs and hide the truth and then just saddle customers with these massive unnecessary costs for which they're going to get nothing. And that's not going to happen with solar. You know, these are transparent contracts. The costs are known. Performance is essentially guaranteed. There's nothing uncertain about it. And the risk profile is extremely low. I mean, the worst thing that's going to happen in most cases is I don't know, maybe a hurricane comes through and rips some solar panels out of the ground. You know, that's not going to happen in Arizona. So what do you think about the competitive outlook for solar relative to coal and nuclear as well? Sure. Let's take those separately. We can start first with coal. And I would say there's a ton of existing coal capacity that's currently more expensive than building new solar or wind right now. Every minute that they keep those plants running and not build a brand new solar or wind plant, they are losing their ratepayers' money. So I don't think there's any way we're going to see a bloom of new coal gets built. It's just a question of how soon those plants get shut down in order to save ratepayers right now. So Bloomberg thinks that there's about 20 gigawatts of coal slated for retirement by 2020, and another 174 more, two-thirds of the total capacity of our U.S. fleet by 2040 just based on economics alone. So I, right. I do think that coal is toast. So, yeah, and in fact, even I actually think 2040 is a little distant, to be honest, for that. <laughs> no argument here. Yeah. And hats off to the Sierra Club with their Beyond Coal campaign. They've done an yeah. excellent job of bringing this all to light and making markets work here. So They really have. So nuclear power is another matter entirely. So I think similarly, there's a bunch of current existing plants that are not competitive. I think Platts looked into Palo Verde and found like if it were operating on a merchant basis, it would be operating at a loss for out of the last five years. Yeah. And, you know, you see like their single-minded focus right now is, is to try to blow up competitive markets and get paid for just keeping the, you know, staying online. We've seen both efforts at the federal level as well as state level in the New Jersey and New York. So I would say, you know, nukes, the existing nukes are already in trouble. I don't think that you're ever you're going to see a new build nuclear in a merchant basis. That's pretty clearly off the table. I would go even farther here. I don't think that there's ever going to be a new nuke plant built in the US unless and until two things happen. One is that they get radically cheaper. And then two, they make a fundamental change to their business model where they take the development risk on themselves. Yeah. Their current business model requires policymakers to commit political suicide. And I don't know how much it's sunk into people who focus on the future for the nuclear industry, just what's happening in South Carolina right now. You've got an instance where they were trying to build 
Sumner plant. It was supposed to be $12 billion, but after spending $9 billion, the costs more than doubled to $25 billion with no assurances that that would be the end of the site. And so the state bailed on it, and the ratepayers are on the hook because they are collecting money as they're building it on the hook for 27 bucks a month for plants that will never deliver a kilowatt hour. So South Carolina House just voted 108 to 1 to fire all the regulators. So if you're thinking about a nuclear future, you really got to ask yourself, you know, where in the U.S. are you going to find three PUC commissioners that's going to approve something that's going to be orders of magnitude more expensive than solar, wind, and storage has bankrupted the last few utilities that have tried it and has ruined the political future of the policymakers that stuck their necks out on this. So on the other hand, you've got Elon Musk looking at Australia where they were having some grid stability problems and he's telling them that he'll build giant batteries in 100 days or they're free. And then he delivered and they're working great. Yeah, we just did a whole episode on Australia with the head of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and talked about that. So, you know, the choice, it's not the real risk here. None of this is because, you know, environmentalists aren't supportive enough of nukes or that there's people that are worried about accidents. This is really a business model problem that the industry has brought upon themselves. This is not a problem because tree huggers aren't clapping hard enough. So, Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you've said there, but I also will note that climate hawks, there are still plenty of them that are in favor of nuclear that seem to be willing to either overlook the damage that's being done to wholesale markets right now in the name of keeping existing clean generation capacity alive, or they believe somehow that there's going to be this, you know, alleged renaissance in small modular reactors or whatever, which they want to continue to support. So what's your thought about just the climate angle of this, you know, more from a political standpoint? Because again, I think that's really where it's coming from. I mean, there are certainly well-meaning people out there who support energy transition who are willing to throw competitive markets under the bus to keep this clean capacity open. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes, with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. 
And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In May, the California Energy Commission passed a mandate requiring that all new homes in the state come equipped with solar power starting in 2020. The minimum size of the solar system varies with the size of the house, and there are some exceptions that will allow builders to meet the requirements by installing storage with the home or by installing separate solar arrays that can be shared by multiple homes. The requirement is expected to add $8,000 to $12,000 to the cost of a new home, but will actually save consumers money, because while the systems would add about $40 a month to an average payment on a 30-year mortgage, it will save consumers about $80 a month in heating, cooling, and lighting bills, according to the commission. That's the straightforward part. However, some energy observers took divergent views on the new band-aid. Some pointed out that residential rooftop solar is a relatively expensive way to provide new solar generation and avoid CO2 emissions, with costs between 12.9 and 16.7 cents per kilowatt hour, according to a report last year from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or about double the cost of a utility-scale solar system, which ranges from 4.4 to 6.6 cents per kilowatt hour. Other critics questioned whether increasing the capital cost of a house would make California's already bad housing crisis even worse by putting new homes further out of reach of prospective buyers. Conversely, the commission pointed out that the supply of new solar-equipped homes is far below the actual demand for rooftop solar, while supporters of the new mandate expect it to help drive down the cost of rooftop solar in the state as builders realize efficiencies in design and installation techniques. Installing solar in the U.S. costs far more than in other countries like Germany because of what's known as soft costs. That's the cost of things like permitting, financing, installation labor, the cost of customer acquisition, supply chain costs, costs for racking equipment, and the work required to meet various local building codes. According to a Department of Energy study, soft costs can make up as much as two-thirds of a total system cost. And according to an analysis by John Weaver, the new California mandate could reduce soft costs so much that the cost of rooftop solar could approach that of utility-scale systems. As for me, it will probably not surprise you to hear that I am more interested in the long-term outcome. California currently gets about 16% of its electricity from around 21,000 megawatts of solar capacity, of which about two-thirds is utility-scale solar and one-third is rooftop solar. This new requirement will increase the state's solar capacity by just 200 to 400 megawatts per year. In other words, best case, it would take about 50 years of new home construction under this new mandate to double the state's existing solar capacity. But California law requires at least 50% of the state's electricity to come from carbon-free sources by 2030, and solar is currently only 16% of the supply. So the additional supply from this mandate is still just a drop in the bucket toward California's clean energy target. And if there is a clear plan to scale up the utility-scale renewable energy to reach that target, I haven't seen it. So while utility-scale solar may be, quote, more economically efficient, that seems a bit beside the point. And I think in the long run, California would like to have 100% renewable energy and absolutely maximize rooftop PV because it's essentially wasted space that has no other use. And putting PV on a roof reduces the need for air conditioning because it shades the house. So in my view, there's ample reason to push for rooftop solar in California, even if utility scale is cheaper or there are cheaper ways to avoid CO2. 
because it's not actually an either-or question. Requiring solar on new homes does not reduce the potential to keep building utility-scale solar, nor to continue investing in other things, like efficiency, that can reduce CO2. To me, this is clearly an additive policy. So the arguments about cost-effectiveness are irrelevant. And I suppose I should mention that when I was in the solar business in California 14 years ago, a requirement to put solar on every new rooftop seemed like a no-brainer policy to me, as did the need for a standardized set of building codes. I'm just amazed that it has taken this long. Item 2. On May 31st, Bloomberg reporter Jennifer DeLuey broke the story that the Trump administration was making plans to attempt yet another way to keep economically failing coal and nuclear plants operating by forcing system operators to buy electricity from the plants. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.